UAB MedCast is an ongoing medical education podcast. The UAB Division of Continuing Education designates that each episode of this enduring material is worth a maximum of 0.25 AMA PRA Category 1 credit. To collect credit, please visit uabmedicine.org slash medcast and complete the episode's post-test. Welcome to UAB MedCast, a continuing education podcast for medical professionals, bringing knowledge to your world. Here's Melanie Cole. Welcome to UAB MedCast. I'm Melanie Cole, and joining me today is Dr. Thomas Stanner. He's a clinical professor of neurosurgery at the Greystone Neuroscience Center office of UAB Medicine, and one of the few neurological specialists in the country who's board certified in both neurosurgery and neurology. Today, we're giving an update on spinal stenosis, helping patients receive faster treatment. Dr. Stanner can help with this by seeing patients in the clinic at Greystone and directing them to the appropriate care. Dr. Stanner, it's a pleasure to have you join us again today. Tell us a little bit about some of the changes in spinal stenosis and give us some recent updates on the impact on the quality of life for patients. Spinal stenosis is a topic that is becoming more relevant because of our aging population. Stenosis, you know, Greek word, narrow, is kind of comparable to having wires in a big pipe in a normal person or wires in a straw in a person who has some compression. And these could be the spinal cord or the nerves themselves. There are many symptoms, and we're going to discuss the changes in our approaches to spinal stenosis during this topic. But I want you to be aware that, again, this is a topic that is becoming more and more seen by our specialists and by the general population because of the aging. Now, people can have, if you will, all sorts of symptoms from spinal stenosis, and that's because it can occur in the neck, the thoracic area, the lumbar. While the thoracic area is the least important by way of frequency, it still can occur, even in the thoracic area. So we look for stenosis or narrowing that can cause symptoms. The symptoms can be of varying nature. They could be a sciatic pain, for instance. They could be back pain, especially on extension. They could be paresthesias or numbness, either in the upper or lower extremities. One of the things we hear is that sometimes patients are developing paralysis and they don't know it. They describe it as a heaviness in an extremity. And that is even with physicians that they themselves have this condition. They may not recognize that they're becoming paretic. They may complain of balance problems or even incontinence. And then there's the various syndromes that we have that we're all familiar with in medicine, I presume. Central cord syndrome, where you have weakness in the upper extremities and tingling. I seen a man this week that had a severe central cord syndrome, and yet he was undiagnosed. Cardioquinus syndrome, I think we're all familiar with that. Patients have profound pain in the lower extremities, one or both. They could have a loss of uh, incontinence. They could have saddle anesthesia, sudden abrupt sexual dysfunction, but especially pain and numbness or weakness in both legs. And finally, there's even a brown sequard syndrome where it's kind of a hemisection of the cord. You get the spinal cord where you can have a loss of sensation on the contralateral side to the motor paralysis. So there's a lot that you can be seen with spinal stenosis depending upon where it occurs. If it's affecting the spinal cord, which goes all the way down from the bottom of the occiput all the way down to the L1-2 area, or if it's in regards to the cauda or distal to it, I tell patients that you can consider stenosis affecting you several different ways. Think of a Christmas tree. The trunk of the Christmas tree holds, if you will, the spinal cord until we get down to the cauda equina. It's the main pipe, if you will, for the 
the nerves come out on the side, you could think of as the branches of the Christmas tree. That's the neuroframlin. That can also be tight. And finally, especially in the lumbar area, you could have what we call lateral stenosis. The joints, the facet joints, becoming somewhat larger and pressing on the nerves as they come around, if you will, the shoulder, the shoulder of the Christmas tree where they come out. So all these things are important for patients, and they could have one or more of these conditions affecting them. And it's more important, of course, if it's spinal cord, but still it could be very important. Even if it's the equina, they can still develop immense paralysis. And it seems to run in families at times. And if one patient has it in, a, in the lumbar area, they may also have it in the cervical area. We have to be aware of that. Now, how do we diagnose this? Well, first of all, there are other clinical findings that I mentioned. And we diagnose it by imaging. MRI scan is ubiquitous now, and it's an excellent study if we can use it for most patients to look and see if they have this compression. And also, in the case of the cervical area and thoracic, you could see if they have myelomalacia or the spinal cord being directly affected. We can see inside the spinal cord MRI scan. The CAT scan, of course, its strength is bony abnormalities. So it sees maybe the neuroframlin where the nerves come out sideways, the branches of the Christmas tree. You can probably see that better than the MRI scan. If we have concerns that we have the neuroframlin being somewhat narrowed, then we might want to get a CAT scan after the MRI scan. Not always, depending upon the quality, of course, the MRI scan. Generally, as a rule, open MRI scans are not as useful as closed MRI scans, but some of our patients are claustrophobic, and if they can't take sedation, well, that's, that's really an option. Even a monogram of CAT scan are still used to clarify the area of compression. Plain spine films generally are not very useful for evaluating stenosis. So I don't know if you're following with me so far, but if you're willing, I want to go over some of the causes of this for you. I would love that. Dr. Stanner, it's absolutely fascinating, and you're making such great points for other providers about clinical findings and things they might not even consider as related to spinal stenosis. So I would love for you to continue and to explain to other providers how you're helping patients receive faster treatment. Well, we do the evaluations, and uh, as you can imagine, neurosurgeons are busy people. And in my practice, I did 36 years of, of surgical practice in the last five years. I've been doing evaluations for other neurosurgeons. I find it's particularly rewarding because I can be there for the patients when they need me most during the evaluation period. And then afterwards, if they need conservative care or surgical care, expedite this quicker than probably a local physician can just because of my specialty. Now, the different causes. Generally speaking, we're talking about the aging spine. So we're talking about the genital joint disease. However, there could be a congenital predisposition. People with narrow spinal canals from birth are more liable to have this problem, although that's not common. So what happens when you have a degenerative back? Well, you know, we all think about degenerative joint disease and affecting 80 and 90-year-olds, but really your spine starts changing after you're two years old and start walking. By the time you're 30, you might see some changes in your spine bulging discs that are not causing problems. Even the anterior tears by the time you're 40 are in the disc. Remember, we're talking about a pipe. So there's many sides to the pipe, the 360. It may be one side from a disc herniation. It may be other sides, posteriorly in the sides from ligament and hypertrophy. Usually occurs, again, in the older spine. But there's other causes as well. Tumors, trauma, even adipose. Some people have adipose in the spine, which can cause stenosis. So there's a lot that can cause this, and it's best evaluated 
by uh, obviously a, a specialist in this condition, but a lot of general physicians should be aware of the primary symptoms that occur and can do the initial evaluation as well, especially if they see a patient who's complaining of those problems that we mentioned and is older. What about treatment, etc.? You know, I've been through many years of seeing treatment, and I've seen fashions come and go, and some things stay that are valuable. I'm going to mention one thing that's of interest, because this is a big topic nowadays, minimally invasive surgery. Arguably, minimally invasive surgery was done in the 1960s by some people. People don't know that. Endoscopic decompression is fairly recent. But things like chymopapain for a disc herniation was used in the late 1960s and 1970s. In the 1980s, we had something called a percutaneous nucleotome for a disc herniation. It looked like a large trocar with a guillotine on the side of it so it slice off and suck parts of the disc inside. These do not stand the test of time. But decompressive laminectomies have. What has been added to the decompressive laminectomies in recent years are something called laminoplasty, especially in the cervical spine. We remove the lamina, then then decompress it, we put a wedge in there, make the opening in the canal bigger, and then reapply it with wires or what have you. So the canal is bigger and keeping the lamina intact. That has sought some favor in recent years. And especially, uh, there seems to be a great trend in the last 10 or 15 years towards fusion. People, I guess, in my age, saw little need for fusion unless the spine was unstable or we were creating instability. But I realized that this is the present, if you will, gold standard, many times fusing. And this is where the surgeon's decision comes into the scope. Still more recently, even uh, I'm reading a, an article here in May of this year, Going back to endoscopic decompression, which is favored over fusion by some surgeons. So we may be going back again to a smaller approach. We'll see. But in any case, whatever your surgeon chooses, and there's more reasons than I can give during this talk, the outlook for surgery on the spine for stenosis is excellent. Even when there's some paralysis, it can be helped frequently. Certainly pain is one of the easiest things to help. And the question is what they have to decide on is when to do something and when is it necessary. What to do is not maybe as quite as important. Again, there's many alternatives that we have available. At one time, we also had even interspinous devices pulling the spinous processes apart, creating more room inside the spine. This seems less favored nowadays. It's, I think people are getting a little bit away from that. But the gold standard is decompressive laminectomy with or without the fusion and the results are really always have been very good. So the question will be then, at an older person, are they able to have the surgery? Are the clinics stable? Are they in anticoagulants? What do we have to do to prepare them for a surgery? Are they massively overweight? These are questions we have to ask ourselves and, and in the evaluation state. And are you using ERS protocols too? As you're telling us how these landscapes have changed and how some of it hasn't changed, really a fascinating talk. Dr. Stanner, are you incorporating EROS? Are you seeing changes in that direction? Kind of give us a summary of what you'd like other providers to know about spinal stenosis and these patients receiving faster, more efficient treatment. I suppose that there has to be a decision along the way about how to treat this, but the first decision is made as to whether or not they do have the condition by way of imaging. And again, I would encourage a closed MRI scan to start with for most patients. This can be performed by the local physicians 
and they can come up with a diagnosis most of the time. Now, I would tell you this, that when you say spinal stenosis, remember we're talking about a pipe, and you could have spinal stenosis and still have plenty of room for the nerves or spinal cord. So just having spinal stenosis by itself is not that relevant unless there's compression on the nerves or the spinal cord. But this can all be evaluated frequently by the MRI scan, and then the next step might be to decide with the patient needs by way of treatment. The local physician may start off with pain medications, with simple pain medications, not prolonged, but for a sudden episode. Anti-inflammatories, muscle access, all been used. And then the next day after that would be a good pain management specialist, board certified in, in that topic, who's an interventionist and gives some spinal blocks. That might be the next stage. Especially important if a person has to do something in the following month and he can't take time off for possible elective surgery, or he's just not a candidate for elective surgery because of his medical condition. Pain management partners with us and can be very helpful. What a great guest you are. You have a wealth of knowledge, Dr. Stanner, to impart to both patients and other providers. I can't thank you enough for joining us today. And a physician can refer a patient to UAB Medicine by calling the MIST line at 1-800-UAB-MIST or by visiting our website at uabmedicine.org slash physician. That concludes this episode of UAB MedCast. I'm Melanie Cole.